0: First Person Advisors is now a subsidiary of NFP, the fifth largest insurance broker in the world, combining local expertise with access to global capabilities and solutions. Learn more at firstpersonadvisors.com.
1: Why didn't the skeleton cross the road? It was because he had no guts. He must have guts. Guts to make tough decisions, courage to act in uncomfortable
2: situations, guts to cross the road. Mickey Maurer's message to IU graduates in 2016, he has walked the walk when it comes to tackling life with courage and guts. From conquering the climb at Mount Kilimanjaro, he made it to the top in 1999, to diving into the deep sea where he developed a gift for capturing pictures of underwater creatures no bigger than a fingernail. Maurer turned that hobby into a book. To his award-winning knack for carving wood into a work of art. He won a blue ribbon at the Indiana State Fair for his woodworking skills. We're just scratching the surface on this one-of-a-kind Hoosier leader. A man who approaches life with gusto, tenacity, drive, guts, and courage. An unforgettable conversation with Indianapolis businessman, philanthropist, and civic leader, Mickey Maurer. My guest this week on the Business and Beyond podcast. Hello and welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick. Multifaceted may be an understatement when describing Mickey Mauer. There's not much he hasn't accomplished. Born in Indianapolis, he calls North Central his high school alma mater. The lure of the mountains called him West, where he graduated from the University of Colorado with a degree in accounting. Mickey returned home and earned a law degree from the IU School of Law in Bloomington, now renamed in his honor the Michael Mauer School of Law at Indiana University. He practiced law for about 20 years, then got into cable TV, radio, banking, public service, now currently holds the title of chair of IBJ Media Corporation, the parent of Inside Indiana Business.
0: And it gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome Michael S. Mickey Maurer to the podcast. Mickey, uh, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to join me. Well, Gary, thanks for the invitation. I'm honored to be here. Well, I I tell you, as I mentioned before we started taping here, you have done so much, accomplished so much over your career. We could go on for a a long time. Um, And you're still not slowing down. Because I've lived a long time. Well, I I was going to say, you're not slowing down at all. What what are you up to these days?
1: Well, um, I'm enjoying uh, participation at the IBJ and at the National Bank of Indianapolis in a different, uh, role now. Um, we we're ably led, as you know, by Nate Feltman here at the IBJ. Actually, you and Nate both together uh, are running the show now. And uh, I don't have to be involved on a day to day basis, only to accept I don't bother you guys. And if, uh, at the bank, I'm no longer the chairman of the board, I'm on the board, but we've got an able chair uh, to take the, the bank for, forward. So I'm enjoying kind of a different role.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, IBJ and Inside Indiana Business and uh, certainly uh, uh, was honored and very excited um, when when, uh, IBJ Media uh, purchased, acquired Inside Indiana Business, now a new division uh, of uh, IBJ. Um, The the evolution, you know, for a lot of things, among them, uh, your ownership, your leadership uh, over the years at IBJ. Thinking back, I guess, what, 40 plus years or so when you bought the IBJ. What was the thought process back then? Why did you want to get into into the newspaper business? I was driving down
1: Pennsylvania Street where the IBJ was office. And I had owned, at that time, I owned some radio stations in Indianapolis. And I got this great idea that I would buy the IBJ, that I would um, let all the salespeople go And all the back office go, and I combine it with the radio stations. And so I pursued that, and there was a kind of a recession going on on the East Coast. It finally came to Indianapolis, but um, the sellers were quite anxious to unload something for cash. And so I was able to close that transaction. And then when I approached, uh, this is a classic example of bad business decision-making. But when I approached our folks at the radio station, they said, are you crazy? We're not selling print. We've been selling against print our whole careers. <laughs> and they mutinied. So that idea didn't work. And the, and then, Gary, uh, the recession I mentioned finally hit the Midwest, and the IBJ didn't perform anywhere near up to the projections that I was furnished. So we started off uh, um, with a bit of a challenge, yeah. But that's how it went—a bad business decision. Um, I can count a number of successes uh, that I've had over the years due to bad bis- business decisions in the beginning.
0: Yeah. yeah. Did you, so? The early days were were tough at the Abbey. did you think about selling or getting out of it, or did, Oh, did never. You
1: yeah, never, Gary, because I was introduced to a number of very bright, curious people, particularly in our newsroom, that were a joy to work with. Uh, it's a thrill to be in your business. And you know that because you're in that business. There's a saying, never fall in love with your business.
0: I fell in love with the IBJ. Interesting. What What do you think, Mickey, about the state of media today? Uh, when I say you know, local media, so much is now corporate owned Media on the local level—that's one of the things that that excites me about the partnership with IBJ—is having a local ownership uh, in media. Your take on kind of the landscape now, because virtually everything seems like it's you know kind of out of state corporate ownership.
1: Yes, and we've resisted that. We've had overtures, of course. There's some bigger chains around uh, that want to include Indianapolis because. Indianapolis is normally the award winner at these conventions, we do a good job. We spend more money, more of our resources to create a better product, it's not corporate. Um, But nonetheless, um, we're we're known for doing a good job and uh, we're at at one point when things were, and it probably will be soon again, when things are a little more fluid, uh, people will want to buy the IBJ. And I'm getting old and so it might be an appropriate time, but um, my partner who I went to high school with, Bob Schloss, and I talked about it and he said, maybe we ought to think about selling uh, and answering some of these inquiries. And you know what we decided? We decided, and and this, don't tell anybody, okay? (laughs) Okay. Between the two of us.
0: Scout's honor, yes.
1: Yeah because it sounds kind of theatrical, but we decided that we had something special, kind of a community asset, rather than just a business. And, and we've been in a, lot, in a number of businesses, but this was unique. And we thought, we can't sell this to just anybody that comes along, because we need to protect this asset to benefit the community. And given the state of journalism in our city, and I won't go into any detail over that. So we made a conscious decision to interest people who would be good caretakers
0: for this asset. And that's how we sourced Nate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A former Secretary of Commerce, as you were uh, first Secretaries of of Commerce. What You've done so many things. Civic engagement, I know, is very important to you. But as you look back, uh, on your service as secretary of commerce in the daniels administration and you did that for one dollar a year in salary right i was paid he wrote <laughs> me a check one dollar one dollar he
1: said it was a close call whether he, i should be paid that year but he, they decided that they would pay me
0: so he did send me a dollar a
1: check for a buck
0: What 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 prompted you to serve in that role because it's certainly not a ceremonial role. It's a very important role and a, a, a lot of hard work, a lot of travel, a lot of, a lot of stuff went into it. What prompted you to do that? Well, at the time, um,
1: Mitch Daniels was running for governor. Like most candidates, he approached me and asked me would I make a contribution to his campaign. And uh, I had just sold those radio stations we were just talking about. And and I thought for an unconscionable amount of um, money, uh, frankly, I thought more than they were worth. And so i I feeling pretty good about what I've been able to achieve with the help of our community and how how great uh, uh, the environment was for people like me to start something and to finish it with a good profit. And so I told our candidate, Mitch Daniels, I said, I was thinking maybe something more because I feel a strong obligation to give back to the community that just made it possible for me to bank all this uh, money. And so I thought, how about if I serve your administration for a dollar a year? And uh, he thought that was a terrific idea. Now, I I did make a pretty significant cash contribution to the campaign. He was careful to know that I should do that as well. So we did. And uh, after the election, he contacted me and I went to his campaign office. And um, he said, I've been thinking a lot about this. And uh, I want you to participate with me in, in my administration. And we've got this agency that's in big trouble. It's, uh, so how about you taking over the Bureau of Motor Vehicles? Oh. And when I heard that, I looked for a window to jump out of. <laughs> at that point, I was willing to do anything he asked but that. So
0: we decided on commerce. Yeah. And that was in transition, certainly, with the creation of the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, coming out of the old Department of Commerce. What, was the, what were those early days like uh, at the IEDC, creating this and growing this public-private partnership and uh, selling Indiana around the globe? Yes, that was heavy stuff, Jerry, because that was
1: all brand new. And um, we did have a, a commerce
0: department,
1: but we stocked the IDC with not political appointees so much, but as real business people, guys who, ex Lilly people, guys with MBAs. Um, and we operated it like a business with the direction of the governor. He said, uh, this is a quasi-business, and you run it like a business. And um, I did, just like a business, at the speed of business, not at the speed of government. There was a time when the governor, probably a good decision, decided to freeze salaries for his all his employees uh, with the state of Indiana. And um, I didn't follow that suggestion. I gave our people uh, deserved raises. Before we did this all, the Commerce Department had a pretty high turnover. People would come to the Commerce Department and put their time in and get a nice offer from somewhere else and away they'd go um, because they were pretty much underpaid for one thing. So I did a lot of people raises when the guy who ran the budget system for State of Indiana under Mitch called and was ranting about this, that I defied the order. I reminded him that Mitch Daniels said, run it like a business. business Businesses to run smoothly must give their people raises and recognition in in a financial manner. And when uh, that message was relayed to the governor, the governor said, yeah, that's what I told him.
0: So, okay,
1: he can do it. And I did it.
0: Fast forward to today, uh, Mickey, what's your take on the state of Indiana in terms of how it's positioned the economy and as as the governor and others go around selling the state. Certainly, a lot of positives, but challenges as well. When you think back to your service as Secretary of Commerce, now to today. What, what, what's your take? What, what's the biggest challenge, maybe facing, in your view, facing Indiana in the, uh, the global marketplace?
1: Well, we did participate in the global marketplace, and we were in Japan on more than one occasion, and in Paris, and in Korea, South Korea. Uh, So we were we were doing what we thought uh, we were supposed to do. And we were very proud of the fact that we had outperformed, significantly outperformed our predecessors. But uh, today, I think that the guys that are doing it downtown now, every bit as good as we were. And the opportunity for Indiana in the world marketplace is every bit as good as it was. Uh, I'm optimistic uh, about Indiana. Um uh, Mitch used to say we've created a, we're going to create and did a good sound sandbox in which to play. Right. You yep. probably heard him say that, yep. but we do have a good sandbox including our tax system and our regulation system. And so it's not so difficult to sell Indiana.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Your business success, well-documented cable, television, publishing, broadcasting, real estate you got an accounting degree at the University of Colorado. So going into college, maybe coming out of college, did you think you were going to be an accountant? No, because my father, who grew up in the
1: depression, and I was the oldest dutiful child, said he wanted to be a lawyer and didn't have an opportunity. I was going to be the lawyer. Wow. So I, being a kind of, child that wanted to please his mother and father i went directly to law school and i graduated law school and i went into law as a tax lawyer and then um for, for big firm in new york was all tax and very sophisticated uh coming back here i worked for a real estate developer for a year and then opened up my own shop hung out my own shingle as they say expecting people to bring me the kind of sophisticated tax work that I was trained for, and I didn't get any of that because who would give a twenty-some-year-old kid one-person law firm anything that resembled high-level tax work? I didn't get yeah. it, so I di- I didn't uh, pursue that that specialty.
0: So you got into business. What 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 kind of was that that spark or that? Uh, that well, specialty? I always
1: wanted to. I always—it was in my mind that I always want to be an entrepreneur. But remember, uh, I was at that time married and and uh, having a kid on the way and all that. I couldn't afford to just strike out in business. I had no capital, and I had to practice law, and I did for twenty years, and that put food on the table and paid the mortgage. But all in the back of my mind, I'm not a lawyer. I'm I'm a business person, and. Um, Again, something just between the two of you, two of us, don't tell anybody. Okay. I wasn't that good of a lawyer. <laughs> I was okay. Just okay. I had a good bedside manner. Nobody ever filed any grievances or anything against me. Um, but when I started hiring lawyers in business, I realized how bad I was. <laughs> and so um, gradually I weaned myself out. It's like off if I could afford uh, more time uh, off of the law practice and and more and more in business. It was all those pro bono cases that I readily took that I had trouble getting rid of. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but um, eventually I stopped practicing after about 20 years and uh, was full time
0: business. And that's where I am today. Yeah. So your dad and uncle owned uh, Mauer Brothers Auto Parts, 19th incentive. In Indianapolis, so so your interest in entrepreneurship kind of came naturally. I, I, I would think. What did you learn from watching your dad and your uncle run a business? The place, Mauer brother's
1: auto parts was uh, named Rex Incorporated by the time yep. I got there, and it was a it was capitalism at its most basic. Um, somebody would walk in and said, for example, I'd like to buy a pirate. So tires come in all sizes and shapes and uh, and, uh, and degrees of of use of use because some of the treads are bad, et cetera. So every single purchase of a tire, and, and the tire is just an example. Everything there is subject to negotiation. Okay. Now think of this: I'm ten years old and not a big ten person, ten year old. And people coming in off the street, they're rubbing their hands together because they say, I'm going to negotiate with this kid. I'm going to get this tire for nothing. And so they all try to take advantage of me or drive their best bargain. And everything is a negotiation. And I learned my capitalism at Rex Incorporated. You needed to be able to sell the tire at the highest price. But God forbid the guy would walk away. You ended up with that darn tire. And my dad would say, a customer would say, no, nope, can't do it and leave. And my dad said, would say, that's your tire.
0: So there's a lot to be learned at Rex
1: Incorporated.
0: Yeah. You know, I know you have been a mentor to many people in Indianapolis and Central Indiana over the years and had such an impact. Who were your most important mentors, well, I mentioned one
1: that's my my dad. I watched how he uh, worked at the junkyard. He worked first seven days and then six days a week and died. I think he I would say he worked himself to death, but he needed he had no college education and so he needed to to work and provide for his family. Um, but other than that, I would say a guy I worked for. After I left the tax law firm in New York, Gene Glick. And now Gene was a, a uh, extraordinary entrepreneur who I could learn a lot from and was at one time one of the top builders of apartments in the entire country, in the top 10. Yeah. And his niche was subsidized housing, subsidized apartments, and um, he did it well and and not only did he teach me how to do techniques on that but he set a great example of how to give your money away he was a terrific philanthropist and he always would say it's it's a lot easier to make money than it is to intelligently give it away Mm -hmm. so there was my mentor from business and from a philanthropic point of view
0: yeah much more ahead with Mickey Mauer, his early days in business, his varied pursuits from publishing to uh, publishing New York Times crossword puzzles, summiting uh, Mount Kilimanjaro to underwater photography and a lot more. Also, his passion for giving back. That's when the Business and Beyond podcast returns. <laughs> First Person Advisors is now a subsidiary of National Financial Partners, the fifth largest insurance broker and consultant in the world. Develop your total reward strategies all in one place with the combination of First Person's local expertise and NFP's global resources and integrated solutions. Learn more at FirstPersonAdvisors.com. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week is noted business uh, executive, business owner, philanthropist, community leader, Mickey Maurer. Mickey, you're an Indianapolis guy. You grew up uh, in Indianapolis, North Central High School. What what was growing up for you uh, in Indianapolis uh, years ago? I um, enjoyed it very much. I think Indianapolis is
1: a great place to grow up, and, and so much so that when I decided I wanted to get married, I was living in New York, and I wanted to get married and have kids of my own. And I thought, I'm going back to Indianapolis. Yeah. I couldn't wait to leave. But I at that point, I couldn't wait to get back because this is a wonderful place. That's why it was so easy for me as the Secretary of Commerce to sell Indianapolis. I believed it. Yeah. So growing up for me in the, in the 50s, I graduated from North Central in 1960. Was a great time. In fact, we had this slogan, and I didn't. I didn't come up with it. It was beer, wine, gin, and whiskey. We're the class of 1960. <laughs> but you know, Gary, I never had a sip of beer, wine, gin, or whiskey in high school. I don't know really? why I adopted that slogan that everybody else was saying, but it wasn't me at the time for sure. <laughs>
0: That's good. Now you went to the University of Colorado. Uh, undergrad degree at, in the county. What led you to uh, go to school in Colorado? Well, this is going to be
1: one of those tales that you probably won't believe entirely, but uh, no one in my family had gone to college. My dad never got a chance. And so we didn't talk about that. I had a good record at North Central, but we just never talked about going to college. And my friend's fellow juniors and seniors in high school were talking about it. And I thought, well, maybe I better go to, to college somewhere. So in the library, there was uh, a few brochures on a shelf. One was a guy skiing down a mountain. And I looked at it and I said, I'll take that one. <laughs> oh, that's great. and huh. That's the only school I applied to, University of Colorado. Really? Yeah, I did that. And I, I, at the time, of course, like most teenagers, I wanted to get the heck out of Indianapolis and be on my own. And so, Colorado was a thousand miles away. It had a skier on the brochure. I just said, all right, I'll do that. Uh, did you have fun in college? Too much fun. I had a, a, a fantastic time, and people overuse that word, so I don't use it very often. But it's one of those wonderful um, experiences, those four years at University of Colorado so good and so much fun that I woke up and said, if I ever want to make anything of myself, I got to get the heck out of Colorado. It's just too much fun.
0: Too much fun. Well, you certainly did. And again, as we talked about earlier, practice law uh, for a spell and you got into the business world. Now you got into cable TV, right? Was that really your kind of that first business venture? Tell me about that because that was that was the You're early right. people, right? Yeah, we were pioneers. And I would work all day
1: at this law practice of mine. And then in the evenings, we'd get in a car and then finally a single engine plane, which my partner and I bought for $15,000. It cost really? $7,500 piece. And we'd fly to various cities, mainly around Indiana, but Michigan and other places. And I would ask the city, Folks, to grant us a cable TV franchise. So I was working kind of day and night, and uh, enjoying it, and trying to build this brand new cable TV company. I remember I went to Brazil, Indiana.
0: You know where Brazil is? It's just Purdue yeah, Clay, Clay County. Yep, not yeah. far from where I grew up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I remember going in there, uh, like I did, and say, "Hey, I'm um,
1: a cable TV guy." I wasn't really. I guess I want to be. Um, grant me the franchise, and I'll build a cable TV system here. And I'll be done if they didn't say, "Okay, good idea." And right then and there, they granted me a franchise. Well, I own a cable TV franchise. I thought I'm driving back from Indianapolis, singing at the top of my lungs. I'm in business. No, I got a cable TV franchise. It's working, and I we did build that cable TV. Yeah, it's a very bad decision, another bad decision on my part, but we went to sell it, and we realized nobody really wanted it. The viewers could get Indianapolis stations, they could get a uh, public service station from Bloomington, they could get the Terre Haute networks, they were awash with TV stations. Why did they want cable TV? So we got about a third of the people, and you needed more than a third to break even. Big mistake, but... There were a lot of guys that were smarter than I was, and right about that time, some of them erected or uh, sent into space a satellite, and the satellite beamed its signals back to Earth. And for the purchase of a dish in those days, that dish was huge, many right. feet across, yeah. Yeah. and it had an amplifier in the middle that would amplify this weak signal from space and make it watchable. and um, by virtue of that dish, we were able to bring in WGN from Chicago, uh, great old movies, uh, Channel 17 from Atlanta, the Atlanta Braves we were bringing to Brazil, Indiana. And all of a sudden, our cable TV system in Brazil took off. And we were very profitable and thought, those guys are the smartest guys on earth. It was a dumb decision that turned out just
0: fine in your view, Mickey, you talk about business success. Is it is it timing? Is it luck? Is it smarts? All of the above. What, what to you, are, are there key, those key ingredients that you see in, in being a successful business person?
1: Well, I think that a successful business person has to, particularly one that's trying to raise money and doesn't have a, a lot like we were in those days, is someone who can first sell himself. So if you're asking somebody to to work with you, invest with you, be a customer, be an employee, be a partner, all that, um, you got to start by saying, hey, I'm the kind of guy, or trying to convince, I'm the kind of guy you want to work with. And so if you start with that if you want to be successful, be able to sell it yourself. I wrote a book called 10 Essential Principles of Entrepreneurship You Never Learned in School. And I did that so that All of my mistakes would be chronicled there, and other people who would read that book would not make the same mistakes. And and I bring that up because in that book, there's a lot of the things that we're talking about uh, how to start a business and how to run a business. And so another piece of advice is that if you're going to be successful, believe me when I tell you that the most important element of every deal is people. People are the most important part of every deal. So when you start looking at an investment, before you look at the numbers, you ask yourself, who's involved? Um, What is that person's reputation? What is that person's track record? How collegial is that person? Can I get along? Uh, What kind of employee, partner, customer, whatever it is you're looking at, would that person be? Solve the people problem first. And that's, I think, what I've done over the years. I've made some mistakes. Got, you're not going to be able to judge everybody the, the way you should, but I've, again, made a lot of mistakes along that line. But that's an important principle. And if you're asking me about a secret for success that I can impart to you or anybody else, I say people.
0: Yeah, great advice. Again, business interests, very diverse. TV, publishing, broadcasting, banking. Uh, and also movie making. Tell me about that. I can't I remember that. Diving in, right, was a movie? Yeah. Uh, tell tell me about that.
1: Well, did you ever go to a movie, Gary, and walk out and say, that was lousy? I could do better <laughs> than that. Let me warn you, don't do that. We had a great time uh, making the movie. But the industry, the distribution side of the movie industry, it's well documented. It's amoral it's uh it's a miserable miserable place to be of course we just unknowingly just sailed right into that storm but we we decided we were going to make a movie I didn't know a director from a producer and uh, we thought we could I mean we can do anything we want to do and that's what an entrepreneur says there's that little voice it says yes you can yes you can uh, because being an entrepreneur is difficult so you better have that kind of self-confidence but this in case was overconfidence and that's not good so we let it be known we were going to make a movie we got inundated with scripts we read a few we found one that we thought we could work because diving in had a lot to do with divers and the olympic headquarters for divers was right here in indianapolis right yeah and we had that wonderful natatorium and so we thought we can film this here and um, we had a wonderful time doing that. Um, there's lots of, lots. Of, we could spend the rest of the day talking about diving in stories. But needless to say, we made a decent movie, but not a great one. Um, we got uh, three stars in Indianapolis. I remember the review in the Orlando paper, that we had a wide distribution, not wide, but we had a decent distribution. The
0: Orlando review said, diving in goes straight to the bottom. Oh no! Yeah, that okay. That's a, that's an interesting. That's one to yeah forget. But of course, cool, and I know, I know you got some exposure on HBO and Cinemax, so so it did get some some good uh, attention um, on a career, Gary. Yeah, day, we needed a
1: bully, a big bully to beat up our protagonist. And Danny, my wife, reminded us that hey, our plumber's grandson is six feet seven inches tall. He was over the over the other day with his grandfather. He's huge. I said, well, get him over here. And he was got on the set. He was a bully. He did great. He beat the crap out of our our star. And somebody spotted him in our little movie. And he's been in Hollywood ever since. No kidding. Yeah. His his name is Abe Ben Ruby. Oh yeah. yeah.
0: Open range. He was in DR. Uh, a regular, and many other places. Uh, very interesting. Hey, you, you keep busy. Uh, you're, you're a guy who who's very passionate about a lot of things. Uh, and so, again, so diverse. You're a publisher, contributor to the New York Times Crossword Puzzle. How many Crossword Puzzles have you submitted to the Times? Well, submitted or published
1: are two different things. Okay. Um, I've been published uh, more than two dozen times wow. in the New York Times including three Sundays, which are the big ones. And uh, at the time, I submitted the last one, the the publisher, a guy from Indiana, by the way, uh, from Crawfordsville, uh, Will Shorts, said that I qualified as one of the prolific um, contributors. It's hard to get published in the New York Times, particularly today. And so to do more than a couple of dozen was it was a good amount at the time. And so I really, really enjoyed and do enjoy that hobby.
0: Underwater photography. You, your underwater photography is award-winning, right?
1: Yes, it's won a number of awards. It's a specialty. It's not just underwater photography. It's macro underwater photography. So if you take a look at your thumbnail, say, that's about the size of many of the things I took pictures of underwater. That's small. A couple of them are so small, you can barely see it with the naked eye. And nature has been so kind to these little bitty things with the brilliant colors that if you have the right knowledge and the right equipment, you can bring those colors to light. And that's what I decided to do. So that makes the book pretty unique. There's not many people doing that.
0: Yeah. Well, And again, you have so many, I'll call them hobbies. I don't know if that's what you would call them, but uh, woodworking. And you, you take these up or you do these things and you seem to really attack them to the fullest because your woodworking has won a blue ribbon at the Indiana State Fair. So you don't just do these things to do them, you kind of do them to, to the fullest, I guess. Well, I was in with my wife in somewhere down south
1: and she was uh, looking at an antique store and I had no interest in that. So I was sitting on a park bench outside of the store and my cousin who was with me comes running out. You better get in here right away. So I go in there and my wife is looking at a colonial tilt top table. In the colonial days with the small rooms, the tables would tilt up so you can move them to the wall and they wouldn't be in the, permanently in your living room. So it's a colonial tilt top table. And it was, the price was $30,000. And I said, oh, please. I said, please don't buy that. <laughs> $30,000 for a table? I might have cursed a little bit. Anyway, I finally said, look, don't buy it. I'll make you one. I didn't know a hammer from a screwdriver, but I committed myself. So I went to work trying to make a Colonial tilt-top table, the way they made it in the colonial days, with a a rasp, hand tools. And um, if you, at the time, looked in my garage, you'd see all kinds of half-done, crappy-looking pieces of what I was trying to make into a table. But I finally got it done. I think it took over a year to get the table that I was trying to make. And yes, Janie took it down to the state fair. And the state fair lady who took the table said, "Well, this shouldn't be in the amateur division. This is this is a professional job. He got to be going to professional table making. And my wife said, "Oh no, we couldn't afford that. This took a year." So that was that was the end. And then I did some other. As I got into the hobby, I I made some other things too.
0: Yeah, Mickey, what's um, what's next? I know you and Janie are travel you. Boy, grandkids, what's uh, what's next on the docket for Mickey Maurer? Well, when we got into the COVID thing and quarantine,
1: Andy was talking to her girlfriends about the latest TV shows that they were bingeing, binge watching on. And I thought, I'm just not gonna do that. I'm gonna search for a couple of things since I have all this time right, not allowed in the office and things are slowed down. I'm gonna try two things I've never, ever done before. So I started sculpting, and I made um, some bronzes. And I, um, you, you start with clay, and then you make the clay, and you take it to a foundry, and the foundry turns your clay into a bronze. And so I've done three pieces of that. Um, I made 10 units of each project, and I sold them. Not for a lot of money, but I didn't want to give them away because then I would maybe find They wouldn't find a home where people really wanted them. So I made people pay me something. I I didn't make any real money on it. But anyway, they they all sold. They sold out all three. And so I I did that. And they're all praying mantises. Praying mantises in various um iterations of a praying mantis i had one you know a praying mantis has six arms and legs so i had a praying mantis using all six arms and legs and playing a different musical instrument like the drums the piano and a bugle and all that it was fun the second thing i did was i wrote a novel and i'd never written a novel before we talked about some of the books i wrote but they're all nonfiction. i wrote my first novel while we were in the quarantine and um, so I don't, I'm, I shouldn't be making a pitch on this program, so I won't. But anyway, there's a novel out there that just came out. You can't and, go ahead. Go ahead and make a pitch. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a little story. It's a, it's a science fiction. It's uh, medical. And there's some sex and violence in the novel, like a lot of novels. So somebody had criticized me and said, Mickey, that's. You put some uh, gratuitous sex in your novel, and that's not, you shouldn't have done that. So I was nervous about it. So I said, Jenny, this is the criticism I got. Tell me about it. She said, well, do you know that novel everybody's talking about? It's called Fifty Shades of Grey. I said, no, I've I've never read that. She said, well, I haven't either. But from what I'm told, your novel only has two shades of gray. (laughs) So then I didn't feel feel so bad. But I loved writing it. And uh, and also, if you're from central Indiana, yeah. I think you're going to like reading this more than anybody else because we talk about all kinds of things in central Indiana. Oh, wow. Okay. Like the Tabernacle Church on uh, 34th Street, uh, uh, Fishers, Carmel, uh, Broad Ripple. I mean, all kinds of m- names and all kinds of, people are mentioned, but not by their real name, but easily, fairly easy to identify. And yeah. I think you get a kick out of saying, oh, that was clever, you know? Yeah. And and uh, being from Indianapolis or central Indiana, I think the book will be of extra uh, pleasure.
0: Hey, Mickey, one thing before we go, uh, and I mentioned in the introduction, but of the many accomplishments, uh, Mount Kilimanjaro, right? You, You scaled or summited Mount Kilimanjaro. Talk about that experience, training for it, doing it, the the challenge. What, What was that like? Well, We were in Africa, and there's this mountain
1: on the equator, and it had snow on the top. Now, can you imagine snow on the equator? It's not like the Rocky Mountains with a range. It's one mountain. It's an extinct volcano. And I looked at it, and it was so fascinating. I said to Jeannie, I think I'd like to climb that mountain. And so when I got home, I I talked to countless friends. Most of them said, are you nuts? But I got nine other people to come to who were a party of 10. And uh, I arranged with uh, a company called Mountain Madness. And we uh, put the whole thing together, and we climbed Kilimanjaro. Um, it was the hardest thing I've tried to do we nine of us made it to the top. Uh one one guy had severe mountain sickness. Um you know more people die on Kilimanjaro than Mount Everest. Oh wow. It's a it's a dangerous place. It's ultra high altitude. One reason is because more people try it, of course. And people who try it who shouldn't try it. Mm-hmm. And that goes to what you were talking about, getting ready. Um, I worked very hard and, and all of us, pretty much all of us did um Because it, if you're scared, you're not going to make it, you're going to work harder. And so I did a lot of uh, running and lifting and leg work and racquetball for those energy bursts and uh, getting my body ready. And I was pretty proud of myself. There's a local guy named Dave Carter. I don't know if you named Dave. Yeah, guy, sure. And he climbed Mount Evers. So he said to me, Mickey. I'm so proud of you. You did such a great job. You climbed Killy. And I felt, hmm, okay. I said to him, you know, since I did that, maybe I'll just try to climb Mount Everest too. I said, what's it like, Dave? Compare Everest to Kilimanjaro. Now, remember, Kilimanjaro is about the hardest thing I ever did. Dave Carter said, well, uh, Kilimanjaro compared to Everest, Kilimanjaro is like a walk in the park. I said, okay. My mountain climbing days are over. And upset. yeah, that That's was the,
0: that was my limit. That's good stuff. Well, you, uh, Mickey, have accomplished so much. We're so fortunate to have you as a Hoosier because you contributed so much to the business community and so many other areas uh, that you have endeavored in. So, thanks for taking a few minutes to to join us for this conversation. It's been a real pleasure on my part, and I really appreciate it. Well, welcome to our IBJ family
1: you're an extraordinary catch for us. And we so much appreciate the chance to work with you. And from a personal point of view, I am so honored that you would think of me and invite me on your show. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you, Mickey. Mickey Maurer, our guest this week on the Business and Beyond podcast, presented by PNC. It's a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment, and beyond. And you can download it And also, Indiana Business News 24-7 at InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I'm Gary Dick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.